you know, I start the scene in a nice pristine suit, then I get shot, and then I get blown up, and then I get blood on it, and, I, and so we have to have each stage of the suits. The exciting thing for me was having the, the DB5 back in, a, in an action role, rather than just looking pretty, and to see it back in an aggressive mode with guns firing, mines dropping. Welcome again to No Time to Die, the official James Bond podcast with me, James King. And if you're a fan of everything that makes up the extra glamour of Bond, the cars, the clothes, the gadgets, the death-defying action scenes, you will be in 00 heaven listening to this episode. Bond was really the first pop culture hero to embrace the power of technology and commercialism. Think jetpacks, auto gyros, wet bikes, jet skis and luxury cars. Now, they might not always have been in the books, but the movies are a celebration of ingenious accessories and stylish accoutrement. So let's start on four wheels. The Bond films are a petrol head's dream, packed with the chicest supercars to complement 007's exquisite taste. I asked director Carrie Joji Fukunaga about the importance of Aston Martins in No Time to Die. Well, the DB5 is the Aston Martin that, that Bond and Dr. Swan take off in Inspector. It's the rebuilt one that was destroyed in Skyfall. And that would have been the DB5 he would have won in Casino Royale. So that, that, that car has a long-running history for Bond. And in its rebuilt state, no one had really established what tools uh, Q might have put in there. So that was pretty fun to try and figure out what are the classic things and what are the, the, the new things we might throw in there as a surprise. And then I know they kind of show a glimpse of a different Aston Martin from The Living Daylights. And uh, that's just a, an Aston Martin I've always loved. And I just thought maybe Bond might have won another one in another game of um, high stakes gambling somewhere else. And uh, the last Aston Martin is a DBS that Nomi's character drives that you see in the film. And uh, they're just they're just beautiful works of art. So we just throw them in there because um, they look like they belong there. So how many of the iconic British luxury sports cars are made for a Bond film? Here's No Time to Die's special effects supervisor, Chris Corbold, who has been working on the James Bond films since the early 1980s. There were eight actually made, um, two eight or well, eight stunt versions. Uh, and then we had two pristine ones, which we call hero ones, which are always there for for Daniel to get in in of and out of, you know. But the 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 other eight were all uh, we had two with stunt pods on top, so we could have the actors inside and the stunt driver. We had UK Rally Champion Mark Higgins driving them around, so that was quite a ride for Daniel in, and Leia inside. Um, we and then we had uh, four others that were. Fully kitted out for stunt guys to drive, and you know they could roll them, smash into anything. They were they were rally cars, for want of a better, a better word. And so, a scene like the one in Italy that, that we've been talking about, Daniel's driving his Aston Martin. But how many of those Aston Martins are there actually going to be in in practicality? Well, there's only one in the film. Yeah, but you're using how many? Uh, we're using ten. 
Right, okay. Yeah, or potential to use 10. I'm not too sure how many we swapped out. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you might have a first unit requirement in one place and a second unit requirement in another place, which happened in Italy. So you had to split your cars up. So that's another reason to have multiples. And you've got cars in different states. So some will be battered, some will be marked, <laughs> some will be pristine. Yes, we had a, a bit of a phenomenon. that the, the first shot that we did in... Uh, Matera was actually the last shot in the sequence so we had to guess what the damage was going to (laughs) be but at the same time we didn't want to totally damage a car because that would have taken one out of our fleet if you like so we 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 had stick on bullet hits that we put on and then we put vinyl along the side and dressed that to look like it had been scraping along walls Uh, I'm sure probably the CGI guys might add a little here and there, but um, yeah, that was a little bit of a shock, but I think we got away with it. And what about some of the other cars for No Time to Die? Jaguar Land Rover um, supplied, I think it was eight of the new Land Rover Defenders. That was under strict embargo. We had to keep it under covers all the time. So um, we had eight of those that we did um, an off, very exciting off-road sequence, um, starting in Norway, and then we're ending up in Scotland and then Windsor Park, Dublin for Norway. Um, and various other cars, you know, ND cars throughout the chase that were just knocked into, rolled over, crashed into, run off the road. Because <laughs> uh, that's one of the exciting things about Bond, isn't it? The, the, the cars, the gadgets, the tech. So that must be something that, that you know, even uh, after all the Bond films you've worked on, you still get excited by what's going to be in use this time around. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, the, the exciting thing for me was having the, the DB5 back in, a, in an action role rather than just looking pretty and driving around London um, to see it back in an aggressive mode with guns firing, mines dropping, you name it. Uh, I thought it was really exciting. I think the audience will love seeing that iconic uh, car back in the, in the frame. Bond is a franchise that, that, that prefers to do the real stuff prefers to do the special effects over the CGI. Absolutely. You know, Barbara and Michael and Cubby before um, were always very, very keen to keep it as real as possible. You know, and this is my 15th Bond now, uh, and they spoil me rotten. They let me live out my dreams and do as much as I can. So I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have them as producers. One of the ones that was just out of this world to watch but was done for real was the uh, train crash in uh, Skyfall. Tell me about shooting that. There's an interesting story to that because um, I was actually out in LA um, at the start of uh, Skyfall, uh, finishing off Dark Knight Rises, and Sam rung me up one day and said, look, Chris, I've got this fantastic chase through the, the undergrounds of London, but I want one jaw-stopping moment to, you know, that really brings it to a halt. So I got my thinking head on and dreamt that night about possible scenarios and came up with the idea of the tube train crashing through from an explosion caused, uh, which he loved and the producers loved, and um, they went with it and wrote it in. And then I got back to London and I sat down with my team of engineers and we got around a table and one of them said to me, Chris, what were you thinking about when you dreamt that up? And I, I said, well, what's the problem? I said, we just get by a couple of tube carriages they said they're 60 tonnes each. Um, okay, well, that could be a problem. We might have to make our own. 
Um, so we make our own. Okay, well, they're 60 foot long. So the, the enormity of what I dreamt up suddenly started coming home. But, you know, it was all, it was all good banter and they love a challenge. So what did they do in the end then? They built them? We, we, we built two lightweight carriages, full-size carriages, instead of 60 tonne. They were still five tonne each. We built an overhead monorail system from one end of the 007 stage to the other, which came along horizontal and then dropped down into the set, as you see in the, in the sequence. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges we had was to actually stop it before it went out the other side. So we had three or four mechanisms that made sure it stopped before it went out the other side of the stage. And who assembles this crew? That's producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. The Bond films have a long tradition of having the same crew time and again, and in many cases, multiple generations of um, families. So we tend to like our team of people, but with each film and with each new director, we also get an injection of new new people, which is exciting. It shakes things up a little bit. I mean, on this film, for example, we have some of the people that have been longstanding Bond crew members like Chris Corbold, who's done 15 Bond films, Debbie McWilliams, who's done 13 Bond films, but we, um, we also have, because of this film, we had um, a new production designer who we really, really loved, Mark Tilsley, costume designer, Suterat, and Linus Sandgren, the director of photography. And they were all a tremendous additions to our and team. I think when you see the film, you'll see the extraordinary talent that they've brought to the film. And Michael, how do you think that helps having that kind of family environment, working with people that you've worked with on many previous movies? How does that help with the production? Yeah, well, it has a tremendous impact having people you work with on many films. There's a lot of shorthand involved. And, uh, and for a n- new director, which we had, on this film, of course, it gives him a, some assurance that uh, that he has a team behind him that are veterans that understand how f- films this large are made and what their responsibilities are. And even when we have somebody like Mark Tilsley that comes in uh, as the new production designer, uh, the still his his the crew he had were all um, almost all veterans of uh, previous Bond films. So even in the art department with a new head of production, we do have a lot of depth of experience. And I suppose, Barbara, the flip side to that is you've got people starting out with you and and going on to big things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the tremendous advantage of these films is, first of all, they're very long shoot. So people who come in fresh and new get to... um, had roughly six month or sometimes nine or 10 month or a year experience working on a film from the beginning till the end. So they see all the stages of development and pre-production, production, in some cases post as well. So it is a great training ground. And, you know, they're learning from the best. I mean, the heads of departments on our films, many of whom have worked up, they worked their way up themselves, are very, very open, I think, to to encouraging talent, young people, and helping them along the way. So, yeah, I think it's a great training ground. Let's meet some more behind-the-scenes talent. Jaw-dropping stunts are a Bond staple. One of the people responsible for them is stunt coordinator Lee Morrison. Lee is a hugely experienced stuntman and has been Daniel Craig's stunt double on previous Bond films. I wanted to find out his view on what makes Bond stunt work 
so special. The beauty of Bond films for all of us, growing up as kids, watching them, seeing some amazing, amazing action sequence and knowing there's been a real person do it. For me, being in the industry 20 years and working and growing up with the world of CGI and then working as a practical stuntman, and there's no bigger challenge or no bigger kudos to being on a Bond film and doing a stunt for real. Bond has always set the standard for all action films for the last 50 years. So to be part of that and actually go into a Bond prepping, designing, coordinating anything, you know you've got to have a real person that's got to perform that stunt. Yes, we'll use CGI to take out lines, safety lines, or we'll maybe just help in, in the slightest, but most of the time, it's a real person performing and doing that stunt. What have you learned from starting out as a stunt performer to now being the stunt coordinator? The one thing is the biggest learning curve working on the Bond film, especially, again, for Michael and Barbara. They don't demand results. You know it's a given. You know, you, you, you work on a Bond film, you've got to achieve results because it's, you know, it's a, it's a Bond film. So coming through in that, in that environment, as a stuntman, you know that it's not just about you. It's also performing and getting into the character, i.e. if you're doubling for Daniel or you're doubling for someone else on a Bond, and it's just making it credible. So it's doing something that is still a, a believable by the audience that that character would be doing it. it as long as it's story-driven and it makes sense and it's logical and, and the audience believe that a, a real person's doing it, I think that's what makes Bond really special. One stunt that's already got people talking is the motorbike jump that was featured in the trailer. Yeah, really pleased at how it turned out, actually. It was, a, it was a big moment, actually, because it was something that Daniel personally felt that was missing from Matera. And so we found an area in the city that we could jump up. So we worked with Mark Tilsley, we worked with um, Steve Bowen, and we, we formulated a plan to build this ramp that was really very steep. So I had to use best judgment, really. And we wanted to build a ramp that looked like it was, should be there in place. So it, it looks like a wall. So to look like a wall, it had to be really steep at 65 degrees. So we, we went for that and prepped it. And then we came to the day of rehearsals to prove the jump. And stunt rider Paul Edmondson, who doubled Bond, one of the best riders in the world, four times world champion. Technically, no problem whatsoever. But then come the day of actual rehearsals and when you actually get to the bottom of the ramp, both of us were having a little look at each other. And me being a rider and me doubling Bond on bikes before, we both knew that you had to hit it at a certain speed. To, it was full commitment. As soon as you had to go for it, full commitment. And to see him go over the first time was a, a massive relief, not only just for me, but for Paul as well. So to see it in the film and being such a big Bond moment, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I'm really proud of that because it's, hopefully it'll be another Bond iconic moment. And there's another epic moment involving these bikes in very different conditions in, in Norway, isn't there? Tell me about that. So uh, riding the bikes, obviously riding the Triumph motorcycles, they, they again, they handled the terrain amazing. To see the guys, you know, go for a section at 60, 70 miles an hour, chasing the defenders, rocks flying by them. The def you know, they needed to be 100% confident in the bikes. You know, you weren't going to misfire. They weren't going to stall. They weren't going to break because I'd put them in positions where I relied on that as well. 007. I'm your new quartermaster. You must be joking. Why, because I'm not wearing a lab coat? Because you still have spots. My complexion is hardly relevant. Well, your competence is. Age is no guarantee of efficiency. And youth is no guarantee of innovation. I'll hazard I can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pyjamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field. Oh, so why do you need me? 
Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. And from stunts to another part of the Bond nervous system, the gadgets. Here he is, Q, one of Bond's most critical allies, played by Ben Whishaw, who took over the role for 2012's Skyfall. Hi, Ben. I'm going to jump straight in. Another tease from the trailer is seeing you as Q in your apartment. So what insight into his character do we get here? Well, I sort of don't want to say too much about that scene because I, I I'm, I'm really like the scene and I, I wouldn't want to spoil it for people. But I like it because it's a little tiny moment of domesticity in a film which is concerned, you know, with huge international crises. And basically Q's trying to cook some roast potatoes for, 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 a, for a guest. And Bond arrives literally out of the blue and disturbs his evening and, and, and it unfolds from there. But I'm not to any more than that. Fair enough. Um, what did you enjoy about that scene so much? I really loved seeing his home environment. I think people will be curious to see, you know, what his habitat is like away from MI6 and how much there is still of him in it and some of the kind of quirky and uh, peculiar (laughs) things that are going on there. It feels very much still like a work environment, really. I don't think he's someone who ever really stops working or thinking. So um, it was it was very nice. And I, I like that the film has this kind of texture in it. So who is responsible for such designs? Mark Tildesley is the production designer for No Time to Die. And here he shares with me what it was like designing Q's flat. That was fun. We've given him a, a house that's uh, in central London, not far from Waterloo Station so that he could cycle to work. We, we, we thought he would cycle. And he has a, a small cottage just off of Waterloo, Victorian, an old traditional cottage, which is sort of cosy. A bit cute, really, a bit like um, his jumpers and various things, slightly quirky. Lives on his own there with his cats, which he loves, and um, they featured heavily in the film. When we were thinking about him as a character, we were trying, trying to make him like it's very normal and domestic at home. So we feature a lot of him doing cooking, but when he cooked, he did it very in a very scientific way. So he measured in milligrams and, you know, and tested everything scientifically. And will we be seeing any sets that we're already familiar with? So it was, it was a, it's a real tribute and it's quite fun to do the classic Bond sets like M and Moneypenny's office, you know, the leather door in, in M's office is a sort of classical icon of Bond. You can't really do a film, a Bond movie without without seeing that. So, you know, if someone said, "Oh, well, let's let's do a sliding door," you say, "Mate, no, you need the studded leather door, right? It's it's part of the world." But we decided that we would give it a tiny revamp. So, from the ox blood red leather, we went to a sort of deep, rich brown, which is a little softer and slightly more modern, but still with the same same image. So we slightly adjusted the colour of the lever on the door and then we made a new painting. So you must be really careful about always maintaining that essence of Bond. We go back to Ken Adams, who's like the godfather of Bond design and one of the great British designers, you know, an amazing 
designer. So we were often opening his book and looking at the the boldness of the of some of the spaces he made. He drew very boldly with big black marker, and um, you know they were very brave for the time, imaginative and brave. And they also contain a sort of sense of theatre, uh, which is sort of to do with a few things. Obviously, scale. Some of the size of some of the sets are amazing, but we, we've tried to um, evoke some of those feelings that we got when we first watched Bond movies, and particularly his ones. So I'm, I'm hoping that in this, that we've managed to recreate some of the sort of uh, architecture and scale that's appropriate for what I think is a Bond movie. It's clear that Bond isn't Bond without this massive behind-the-scenes operation. I asked cast members Jeffrey Wright and Rami Malik what it's like working with the off-screen talent. When I talk about the, the kind of intimacy and the, and the hardworking humility of these films, I, you know, I really have the crew in mind. You know, it's a proper British grind it out, get it done with, with minimal complaints crew. And I love working in those settings because I like to um, hold up my end of that, you know, that deal. Um, and I like to, to, you know, to come in, do my work, and at the end of the day, have the crew say, you know, well, good on you, man, you know, and, uh, and then we head off to the next one. I think we, you know, we should pay homage to the crew entirely. But if I, if I do step back and kind of think of one behind-the-scenes character uh, that, uh, that should take a bow in this one, and, and, and on many of these films, is Chris Corbalt, who's, you know, special effects and... And, uh, and an engineer and designer of just the highest order. There's some set pieces in this. I won't get into them, uh, but there's some set pieces that he built for this thing that are maybe the most incredible uh, pieces I've ever worked on and, and lent so much to you know, what we were asked to do as actors and lend so much to the story that it just can't be overstated. When when you have like a collaborator like that on the technical side who whose work lends so much to the emotion and to the dynamics of your performance, it's it's just remarkable. And it, and it's and it's one of the aspects of working on on, on any film that I, that I really appreciate is that kind of collaboration. There were a number of people, I would say, like I said, Mark, uh, our uh, production designer, is uh, top of his game. You know who's incredible is Simon, uh, sound. You know, you don't often hear a lot about sound, but when this guy steps in, you know there's a problem and you know have to, you have to stop and re-record. And that's because of how talented he is. Uh, he has all the accolades to prove it. Uh, Suterat, our production, uh, well, she's a costume designer. She's also a production designer as well. So uh, having someone uh, of that caliber was just monumentally helpful you just know you're in good hands and you know if i really have to single another person out which i would love to uh linus our our um dop is uh you could you could call him a master um and when you see the look of this film it is uh 
I think there's something uniquely, not futuristic, but it has this element of, I can't quite put it into words, it's something you've never quite seen before. And I think even when you're watching the trailer, you can see how crisp it is. But I think the movie uh, will go even further in that direction without looking uh, too, I would say, gimmicky or, or, you know, technologically enhanced. Look up James Bond's style and you'll be inundated with features on the spy's legendary wardrobe. And it's really been that way since day one. His clothes always a reflection of his sophisticated lifestyle. Producer Barbara Broccoli told me more about that essential attention to detail. It's always been the case ever since, you know, the first one when Sean Connery, uh, you know, when Terence Young, the director, took Sean Connery to the tailor and... Um, and explain to him, you know, you're getting a Savile Row suit and you have to basically sleep in it just to get accustomed to it so that it feels like a second skin. And you mustn't covet it. You must just treat it as if it's nothing. You know, when you take it off, just throw it on the floor, you know, don't because he wanted him to feel as if he was he was a you know, an animal, kind of a, an animal who was on constantly on pursuit. Um, and clothes were just an accoutrement that would get you into places. It wasn't anything to kind of, you not if you're worried about splitting the seam in your trousers, you're you're not going to jump over a wall, are you? Mm-hmm. So um, it, they've always been important. And Daniel, of course, looks so magnificent in everything. Uh, everything he he just looks great in everything. But it's a it's a challenge the costumes because they have to be durable. They have to look good when you're running and when you're jumping and when you're climbing. And we've got to make multiples, obviously, because he'll go in the water and be underwater or be wet. We have certain stunt doubles that have to be fitted and harnesses and things like that. So it's a massive undertaking to get things to look really good under all of those circumstances. And we had a phenomenal designer, Suturab, and she was just amazing. Her whole team, um, you know, really paid attention to details and got the most magnificent, I think, costumes for all of the characters. So there's this huge amount of effort gone into Bond's character and his outfits, but in a way he has to look as if it's not a big deal to him. Exactly. And he carries that off beautifully. You know, occasionally he'll, you know, just check his cuffs or straighten his tie, uh, which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but... um, yeah, he, he carries them well. Here's Daniel Craig telling us about James Bond's very specific wardrobe. Um, what are we seeing Bond costume-wise in this film? The poster, he's certainly in sort of military gear, isn't he? Yeah, well, Sudarat, who's our costume designer on this, she's genius. And she's like, I'm really, really particular about it. Probably a complete pen in the arse, but... Um, it has to look like he doesn't care, but it has to be like everything's really, really thought out and it has to be absolutely to the, to, to, you know. So we spend months and months and months and months in dialogue. The suits are made by Tom Ford. He, he, he collaborates with us and we adjust his suits and he lets us do anything we want. So the suits are very particular to Bond. They fit me particularly and all of these things. All of that's the, the cloth and everything that we do, we, we think about. But it's sort of casual clothes, what he wears when he's not in a suit. And that look you see in the in in the poster is um um or in the teaser poster is a uh, 
is a very is is something which is to do with something to do with the SPS, something to do with uh, special forces, something to do, but the the trousers alone took about three months of design. And Suterat was like, just she wanted to get them exactly right. I mean, that's that's what we do. What, yeah. what, what were the things you have to get exactly right about them? My ass looks has need to look good in them. <laughs> it's like Jennifer Lopez. Here. <laughs> exactly, I have to look like Jennifer Lopez. Um, no, it's like it, they have to be. I want people to look at them and go, "What's that?" I want people to be like, "I want I want every frame in the movie to be of interest." So the clothes that I'm wearing have to be of interest, and they have to be so. So the sets are amazing, the cars are amazing, the locations are amazing, the clothes are amazing. It's like everything has to be. So it's just about it's just about, and that's you know that's what we have an amazing team um, in, in the costume department who are on that. We have. Um, um, tailors and um, people who are just stitching and creating clothes a lot of the clothes are made um, and, and plus the fact that if I have a suit that's involved in an action sequence I need 25 of them 20 or 25 of them because each one has to be broken down you know I start the scene in a nice pristine suit then I get shot and then I get blown up and then I get blood on it and, they, and so we have to have each stage of the suit so then um, they all have to work and they need to fit but then they also need to have room for you to to do action scenes in them. So I'll have seen, I'll have other ones that are slightly larger so I can fit pads underneath them. It's um I mean it's an amazing when you go into the costume department on a bomb movie it's 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 just I mean it's a hive of activity um, you know people working incredibly hard but just like you just like the costumes go on forever. Costumes are one of the vital tools that a director has to tell the story. They communicate the minute details of a character's personality and help an actor to transform into someone else on screen. Here's director Carrie Joji Fukunaga talking about some of the other costume choices he made in No Time to Die. Sutra Lalarb was the uh, costume designer, and she she draws very much from the context of the story. So everything's sort of like character-based, and she'd bring these different ideas to, to what people might be wearing, whether it's Madeline and how her style might have changed over five years, uh, Bond now in retirement, um, you know, to the villains and the the henchmen that work with them, you know, just kind of creating a palette that we were kind of excited with, and that it was just a kind of um, a, a, a whittling down process, really, uh, to try and find things that that was um, that felt also uh, in continuity with the uh, the amazing sets that the art department were creating under Mark Tildesley, and Mark and Suturat. Worked, had worked together quite often, so they already had a really wonderful working relationship. And when I was on the set at Pinewood, I remember seeing an apron that Q wears in his kitchen, which I think had a Japanese influence to it. I mean, I, I do love Japanese aesthetics, uh, and I'm and it's purely because I, I just think it's it's really beautiful. So whenever I can, I do throw some Japanese things in there, but not not there was no like there's no Easter egg in that necessarily. Let's hear from Suterat Lalab, the costume designer on No Time to Die. And I asked her how much pressure there is working on a cultural phenomenon like a James Bond film. I operate in one gear, generally speaking. I take every decision seriously. I, you know, try to unturn every stone. I use a lot of research. I do a lot of research. I speak to the director, I speak to the actors. I, there's quite a lot of legwork. Um, I have this I have this incredible team. I make sure that my team is um, always accessible to my ideas so that nobody's ever twiddling their thumbs. It's such a massive project. So it, all of that already exists as a kind of level of diligence in my practice, but then to have it, you know, 
doubled and tripled and quadrupled by the the weight of response every every decision had this weight of responsibility to the to the franchise to the history to the legacy to what fans expect but also there's this gauntlet that's thrown down with each bond film which is how are you going to outdo what we've just done so you know i i and my team we diligently studied all the previous bond films Um, There was a period where we were waiting for the script to arrive. And so we just went back and studied um, so that we were just sort of fully armed. And the language of Bond was hopefully coursing through everybody's veins. What do you think are some of the things that you got from revisiting all those old movies? I think there's some tropes that exist in the in the sort of popular mindset of what Bond is. And you you kind of had an image in your head of of, you know, what the baddies are going to be like and. You know, there's always a bunch of people running around in boiler suits. When you revisit them, you try to put all of that in the, into the context of the characters and the sequences and the requirements of each story so that it doesn't just seem like you're, you know, um, I guess it's not iconography for iconography's sake. Carrie, as a director, is so exciting visually, but he's also very steeped in you know, he wants you to uncover all the sort of background into why something visually makes sense. So you can either decide to have every decision be a kind of synthesis of all that you have found, or you can just deny all of that because it's been done, doesn't make sense for what the script wants or what this character needs. I, I tried to make sure that we were paying enough attention to make it recognizable and feel like it fit within the the lexicon of what Bond is, but we also wanted it to feel different um, and sort of push it forward. So part of that lexicon in terms of James Bond, I suppose, is the suits. I mean, we picture him in a suit or a tuxedo, smartly dressed. Um, Tell me about the suits and and the formal dress, if you like, in, in No Time to Die. Knowing that this would be Daniel Craig's final foray into this character, I think it would have been very remiss to not have an opportunity to to put him in evening wear. Um, so with that in mind, I did revisit what he specifically had worn in terms of evening wear through um, his tenure as Bond. And from the get-go, Daniel was incredibly collaborative and trusting with me. And we got on very well. And he was so open to me kind of suggesting things. Unfortunately, we didn't have the kind of time that uh, in previous films um, they had to produce the tux. So I was a little bit worried that we weren't going to, um, ha- you know, for action sequences you you need for all kinds of technical reasons and stunt reasons and the doubles and the levels of distress that happen throughout a journey of action. You know, if there's an explosion or a gunfight or whatever, blood, water, you can't just have one tux. You have to have many multiples. Um, so the, the, the shooting schedule was such that the, the requirement of a tux made itself known with very, very little time to get it done. <laughs> just in terms of numbers... If you have a scene where James Bond is wearing a tuxedo, um, we obviously in the audience see him in apparently one tuxedo. But how many would you say are actually made? I I can tell you that uh, me, my right hand Michael and our wardrobe supervisor Pashal were in a 
room and at midnight in Norway, when we were shooting in Norway, trying to work out in a very emergency type situation, there was only so much of this fabric available in the world um, that had been approved by a combination of me, Daniel and Tom Ford. And we wanted to make sure we had enough to um, service all the stages of action and distress and also outfit his stunt doubles. So we worked out with the amount of fabric that was available that we could ask for 33 tuxedos. And then we sort of did a matrix of who would get what tux when and the size differentials, these slight difference in size and body shape between him and his doubles. Nothing that the eye can see when you're watching the film, but it does matter in terms of bespoke tailoring. Uh, we'll finish off with a couple of the other characters um, and perhaps you can tell us a bit about their outfits. Safin, so the villain, what yes. can you tell us about uh, his costumes? Once we found out what the environment for Rami Malek's character was going to be, where it was sort of geographically in the world, I sort of took cues from that geography. Um, and one of the images that I came across in my research was um, this beautiful image of um, the designer, uh, the fashion designer, Isemiyaki, kind of at a drafting table. And there was something about this um, image, this black and white image that I sort of pitched to Rami and I pitched it to Carrie. And I said, the thing I love about this image is it, it it's like he's the architect of the world and he's just kind of at his study, but he looks so elegant and sure in the same way that the kind of ease with which Bond looks always at the ready. But this was in a kind of domestic setting. So I kind of always knew I wanted it to be more of a relaxed feel, like he's so comfortable, but it had to have a sharp edge to it as well. So we settled on, um, I'm not sure which costumes you saw, but the the sort of one where he's wearing um, in, his, in his lair um, is something that we made in-house um, from sketches of mine. And we basically, that was that was the trigger point, was that, that photograph. So I sort of took nudges from Japanese clothing and a few other bits of reference. We should finish talking about Madeline Swan. Of course, we have seen Madeline before. She was in the previous film. So tell me about her returning and, and if you've changed the way that she dresses for No Time to Die. I do feel like we changed her a bit. Um, you know, we're entering this film when we see her in a period where the her life circumstances have changed. When we when we met her in the previous film, Inspector, um, she was sort of um, you couldn't quite define. We didn't know her. We didn't understand her. And I'm not saying that we know her and understand her throughout this film, but there's definitely a circumstance change. By the end of the last film, she and Bond are together. So there's this journey that that previous film could take with her clothes. In this film, we enter it, you know, they are a couple. There's the love story. So, you know, there's there's an arc that happens with her character in this film, what she goes through, and I wanted that to be evident in the clothing compared to the, the previous film where, as a psychologist, there was a kind of neutral and almost um, undefinable-ness to her, if that made sense. And we wanted her to feel a lot more, uh, sort of, more, I guess, more iconic in the sense of you see the journey she's been on and you see the journey she might go on. It's a little bit of a darker um, take on her from the outset. Coming up in our final episode... 
Being 007, we hear from the man himself about what it was like when he got the role. I mean, I got drunk. That's what I did. I went and bought a bottle of vodka and a bottle of vermouth and a cocktail shaker and made myself three or four vodka martinis. Except I could only do it on my own because I, well, I, I couldn't celebrate with anybody because I had to keep it secret. So so it was, it, there was a sort of melancholy to it. It was like me drinking, I'm James Bond. <laughs> This is a Something Else production. Follow now to make sure you don't miss an episode.